The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. I'd like you to open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 25. I know that this doesn't look right. This is our Christmas service, and you've heard beautiful music about the birth of our Savior in a lowly manger in Bethlehem. And you would expect that we would take our text for the message from Matthew chapters 1 and 2, which I read just a few minutes ago, or perhaps from Luke 1 and 2 that we will read on Friday night, because those are the only places in the Bible that describe the story of how Mary gave birth to a child who would be the Savior of the world. Those are the only places where we find angels announcing his birth, or the story of the wise men who traveled from the east to come and present gifts to him and to worship him. And you can search Exodus 25, or the entire book of Exodus, and you will not find anything like the story of Jesus' birth. But what you may not know is that Exodus does have much to say about Jesus. It tells us more about his work of redemption than any book in the Bible. Now, the problem is that the story of Jesus is not at surface level in Exodus. It's not easily discovered like it is in Matthew and Luke. To find Jesus in Exodus, you must take the Bible comprehensively. You, you must explore the Bible from cover to cover to see how that Exodus is the beginning of unfolding the purpose of Jesus being born in the manger in Bethlehem. Now, during the month of December, We've been searching out Jesus in the Old Testament system of worship that's known as the tabernacle. And we're on a journey, as the wise men were on a journey, to find Jesus here and to bow down before him and honor him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Several weeks ago, while I was away from church and recuperating from surgery, I had a few conversations with with folks about preaching. Uh, I'm thankful that some of you missed me in the six weeks that I was away, and you were happy that I was able to return to the pulpit, notwithstanding the marvelous job that our men who filled the pulpit for me, the wonderful job that they did. But it was interesting that I heard the same comment from three different people at separate times. Each expressed the desire that I would preach about Jesus. Well, you've heard me say in many sermons that we're always preaching about Jesus because he is the focus of our worship. This is his church. He is always our theme. And yet I realize that it's possible for us to have Jesus in the background of all of our sermons and yet not often enough bring him into the foreground. I was asked to preach about Jesus, and that is just a, a general request that leaves me much room. To preach about Jesus from the Bible 
a Bible that's all about him gives, gives me a great deal of latitude how to approach preaching about Jesus. Now, we're in the Christmas season, which is a time to speak of the mystery of his birth and the incarnation, the miracle of the virgin birth, the delightful and fanciful elements of the Christmas story. These are things that we've sung about today. But we don't stop with his birth. The scriptures go immediately into his ministry of redemption. And they go into his life. And the purpose of the gospel accounts is to show the power and the authority and that Jesus is the perfect son of God. And then, of course, we, we preach about his death. It's the sacrifice of his life that was the payment for our sins that God used to reconcile us to him. And then, of course, there is the resurrection. This is what validates the work of Christ and guarantees our eternal life in heaven. And each of those topics has many subtopics that I could preach if I'm asked to preach about Jesus. But I believe if I'm to preach about him comprehensively, there isn't a better place. There isn't a better starting place than the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the Old Covenant. A covenant is an agreement. It's the pact that God made with his people to save them and to preserve them and establish them in an everlasting kingdom. And so I'm pleased that a comprehensive study of Jesus takes us to the worship of the tabernacle. Before God gave Moses the law in Exodus... There are several figures of Jesus that are found in the book of Genesis. Last week I, I mentioned the Proto-Evangelium, that is the first preaching of the gospel, and that is the prediction that Jesus would be born found all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 32, the angel that Jacob wrestled with was the pre-incarnate son of God. Jacob said, I have seen God face to face. In Jacob's prophecy of Genesis 49, he said that the Messiah would be born of the tribe of Judah. But this mysterious story of Jesus ramps up considerably when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and instructions for worship. His instructions were to make a sanctuary, a tent of meeting, where the God-man, Jesus Christ, would be worshipped. This was the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the Old Testament Christmas. Now, once we get past Genesis, which is the book of beginnings, we're taken into the establishment of Israel as a nation and how they were given God's law at Mount Sinai. The law reflects God's character and when Israel obeyed the law they demonstrated they they had an understanding that God is righteous and just our system of justice is founded on old testament law and despite the constant complaints that religion or specifically God must be separated from the state the very fact that we have this law and obey it automatically says that we have a duty to be like the God who gave it. If we are to separate God from the state entirely, then we should look for another law. 
We should formulate some other means of, of jurisprudence that, that would have nothing to do with God. But the problem is we can't. And we can't because built into every person in the world is the law that God wrote on the human heart. The knowledge of right and wrong and how to deal justly comes directly from God's character. And we were all created in the image of God. And so we can't conceive of any other justice because there is no other form in our moral code. Every time that an honest judge swings a gavel, he gives assent to the existence of the God who made us. Now my point in mentioning this is that our law is inextricably tied to the Creator. And if it is, which it is, then we must acknowledge His power and authority because ultimately it is His law that functions as our governing authority. And once we get that far in our acknowledgement, it is right and reasonable to worship the one who has all authority. And this is the reason that coupled with the laws for the government of Israel, there was also given requirements for worship. And these stand together as an ordinary progression, the one from the other. And both of these in concert acknowledge our duty to the creator in the whole man. That is physically, morally, and spiritually. It is our duty to obey God. And this reflects Jesus' command in the New Testament. When he quoted from the law and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is a command for entire sanctification in the whole person, physically, mentally, and spiritually. And thus we see it's impossible for us to separate ourselves from God in either physical or spiritual aspects. The fact that we use God's law to govern us automatically acquiesces to his authority over us. We rule correctly only in accordance with God's law. And so the point is that God can't be separated from the state. And I think that our founding fathers were intelligent enough to know that. But on the other hand, religion is also formed in the human heart. And according to Romans chapter 1, the natural man, that is what we are with as we are born, the natural man, according to Romans 1, suppresses the knowledge of God. The natural man changes what he knows about God and eventually he will transform into the worship. He will transform this worship of the one true God into images that are made like the physical world. Romans chapter 1 says, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. In the 25th verse of Romans 1, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. These verses tell us that people always want to make God into a lesser being into a being that, that conforms to a standard that is no higher than us and often lesser than us 
And so they make God into an inanimate idol made by human hands, which is simply our attempt to give us control over God. Now, knowing the corruption of fallen man and knowing what man is always prone to do, God gave Israel a highly organized, very restrictive, detailed system of worship with instructions to be followed explicitly. To keep his people from the wicked imagination of their hearts, he gave them something visual. He showed himself in holiness in the symbolisms of the tabernacle. And at the tip top of these visualizations was the Ark of the Covenant. So we find here in Exodus chapter 25, in verses 10 and 11, God commanded this, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. In this chapter, we find at the very beginning, close to the beginning of the chapter, after the command to make the tent of meeting, the Lord gave them the command for the first furnishing of the tabernacle, which was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is a multifaceted view of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Is he only a human baby that came into existence in Bethlehem? And the answer to the question is no. The Ark of the Covenant is his biography. It's a picture book or a photo album of what Jesus is about. And perhaps one of the most interesting and important aspects of Jesus Christ is the inseparable connection that he has to God's law. Kept inside this Ark of the Covenant were the tables of stone on which God wrote the commandments. And these two stone tables are the basis upon which all human governments are founded. This is the law by which we will be judged. It's the basis upon which every person will be condemned. No matter what nation that we belong to, God rules us all either to our justification or to our condemnation. And then above the Ark of the Covenant forming a lid that concealed the law was the mercy seat. And this mercy seat was needed because the law grants no favors. The law pardons no one. There is neither mercy nor grace in the law. But the ark is different because it represents Jesus Christ, who is the perfect standard that is required, and yet also he is the one who gives mercy to fallen sinners who are never perfect. And thus, in the Ark of the Covenant is both seen the perfection of Jesus Christ and the provision for the pardon of those who put their faith in him. And on this mercy seat, there was a brilliant light that showed the presence of God. My introduction is to show you that presiding over every correct adjudication of our civil laws is God himself. We don't see him in glorious, visible light. We often wish that we could. But if I were to ask you, how does God 
manifest himself today as the presiding judge? I hope that you would answer in the light of Jesus Christ. In the light of the gospel of Christ. This is the good news that Jesus was born. That he came into this world and took upon him the condemnation of the law that we deserved. He took the punishment of it. He did that for us when he went to the cross. And through the death of the cross, we receive the benefit of his perfect standing with the Father. The law is never ignored. The law is never shoved aside as if it doesn't matter. It is upheld in the perfect life of Christ. When the Apostle John wrote about the incarnation, he said, And the Word, John 1.14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the light that was shining above the Ark of the Covenant was a picture that one day God would come to this earth and he would live among us. That his glory would overshadow us, grace and truth, and our redemption would come through him. And with this, we turn our attention to our discussion. We're speaking of the Christ of the Covenant. Now, in the graphic that I want to show you now, we have a, an artist's conception of the ark. This is from an old series of slides that was used by my father when I was a child. It's kind of interesting that my father, who was a pastor for 40 years, believed that kids in church should be a little bit more advanced than veggie tales. So these are things that I heard when I was just a child in church. This picture shows the high priest on the Day of Atonement as he sprinkled the blood of the animal sacrifice on the mercy seat. My message today assumes that most, if not all of you, understand that the blood of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament was emblematic of the blood of Jesus Christ. The priest sprinkled blood as a picture that Jesus would shed his blood on the cross. The ark was not an idol. There were no idols made of Jehovah God because the tablets of the law that were inside the ark said it is forbidden to make images of God. The Ark of the Covenant was not an idol. It was a wooden box that was overlaid with gold. And this was the focal point of worship. This was the focal point of Israel's worship. If we could have that point, I want you to see that. So that's for your listening sheet. Other nations made idols. With their hands, they made their gods. They placed them in their magnificent temples and they worshiped them they acted as if these idols made them and had the power had power over their lives and so they prayed to the idols they pleaded with them and they even sacrificed their children to them but the ark was different it wasn't an idol the power of the god who told them to make this was real pagan nations knew there was something different about israel's ark and they were afraid to take on its power An idol represents an imaginary God. As Paul said, an idol is nothing in the world. He called them dumb idols. And he wasn't necessarily referring to their intelligence, although that fits, but to the absence of life and power. 
that an idol has no power. It has no life. And Paul was not concerned with offending anybody's idol because idols are not God. So instead of idols, they had Israel had what no others had. What was that? Well, they had a sacred throne which indicated the presence of God. The ark was their visual of the throne in heaven. The ark was made after a pattern of things that are in heaven. And more important than the throne itself is the person who sits on the throne. And so the brilliant presence of God, a living presence, that's something that idol worshipers never experienced. In the 22nd verse of Exodus 25, it says, God said, I And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee above the mercy seat from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So God's presence was there in a brilliant light, and this light was Israel's assurance. This was their surety that God was with them and that he would protect them. It was his presence that locked in all the promises that he made. Israel was not as faithful to the Lord as they should have been, but God was always faithful to them. God always fulfills his promises. The light of God's glory is what Peter, James, and John saw when Jesus invited them to come up on the Mount of Transfiguration. The glory of God is Jesus Christ. That's who he is. Now, if I could mention just for a moment the controversy about the star that the wise men followed to lead them to the place where Jesus was. Astronomers, astrologers, and others for centuries have tried to solve this puzzle of what the wise men saw. Was it a star? Was it the convergence of planets? Was it a comet? Was it some other heavenly body? Well, I think most likely what they saw was the light of the glory of God. In Luke chapter 2, we read that the shepherds were surrounded by the glory of God. God can make his glory appear anytime, anywhere. And this may be the way that he led the wise men where they were to go. Well, in the Old Testament, God showed Israel that he was present with them with the light of glory that was above the Ark of the Covenant. Well, next, Israel's worship in the tabernacle involved a secret room and the way that God made his plans in eternity past. So next, the Ark represents a secret room. With It's all about the plans that God made without advice before this world began. So it's a secret room with the plan of God. The Ark was put into a secret place. There wasn't an open invitation for all of Israel to come and see what was there. No one was invited to inspect the ark, to look inside of it, to handle it in any way. And that secrecy is emblematic of the council halls of eternity where God's plans were made. There was an element of mystery to the ark. Access to it was blocked off by a curtain that ran from the floor to the ceiling Not even the ordinary priest could view it. Only the high priest was permitted to see it, and he saw it on one day of the year, and it was for the sprinkling of blood. The holiest place was not open because the presence of God cannot be accessed 
except through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I want you to remember this. No one has access to God except through Christ. And so if you want to see God, it makes a difference what you believe about Jesus Christ. And I know that as we celebrate Christmas today, that most people think that Christmas is for everybody. Most think at Christmas, God has favor on everyone as if he's Santa Claus. And so he dispenses good for people everywhere. The truth is that God is not interested in anyone who hears about Jesus and then refuses to trust him as their savior and to follow him as their Lord. No one can come into the presence of holy God without Jesus. And so if you want to teach your children about Christmas, teach them this. This is far more important than placing presents under a tree. The place where the ark was kept was in the holiest of all. The tabernacle had two compartments. There was a room that was called the holy place. And then there was another room called the most holy place. That's where the ark was kept. And that place was separate and forbidden. It was called the holy place or the most holy or uh, excuse me, the the most holy or the the holy of holies. Tabernacle was not a, a permanent building. It was an elaborate tent that was, that was moved as Israel traveled throughout the wilderness. And so the ark had to be picked up and moved as Israel went from place to place. The ark had staves or they had long poles to pick it up. And when it was moved outside of the Holy of Holies, it was covered. No one was allowed to see it. So there's this secrecy about the ark In the Holy of Holies, there's this curtain that seals it off. That's called the veil. And in the New Testament, the New Testament describes to us what that veil was all about. It says that the veil represents the flesh of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus came in the flesh, his glory was veiled. His glory was hidden by his humanity. As a little baby in the manger, he was God, but his glory could not be seen. God came to dwell in flesh, but not to let us see his glory. Moses couldn't look directly at God on the mountain, even though he was knowingly, physically closer to God unveiled than any before him. God never intended that we would see him, but only that we would know him through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now and forever, the only way that God is seen is through the body of Jesus Christ. Everything that we know about the Father comes through Jesus Christ. And that is what is foreshadowed in the tabernacle 1,500 years before Christ came in the incarnation. God would not let anyone see this light behind the veil. It's only seen by the priest when he comes with the blood on the day of atonement. It's only when he stands in the place of Christ to sprinkle the blood that the ark was seeing. And that symbolism is that the way to God cannot be opened except through the blood sacrifice of Christ. When he died, the veil in the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom by the hand of God. And at that moment... The way into the Holy of Holies was opened and ceremonial worship in the temple ceased. That's because the types were satisfied when Jesus died on the cross. 
Well, that secrecy that I'm speaking of leads us to the plan before the world was created. Until the death of Christ, the veil remained in place throughout Israel's history. And until Christ came, that veil always was there. And while it was there, God's plan was in progress. The plan wasn't yet fully implemented. It wouldn't be consummated until Christ came. God's plan stretched all the way from eternity past when the Godhead in council determined to create man, to permit the fall, to choose his people for eternal life, and then to provide redemption through his son that he would send into the world. Everything that God does is ordered. All of it is planned. It's guaranteed. And all is independent of anything we do. And this is what I mean by secrecy. God's plans are made in secret and are known only to him and not in any way dependent on us. The Bible teaches that even our repentance and faith come from God. As James said in Acts 15, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And so if what God does is in any way dependent upon what we do, then he is our idol that we manipulate. The mysteries of God are unknown to us. Well, if so, then in, when and where do these mysteries, when are they revealed, all these things that are unknown? Do we, in fact, discover mysteries that were previously unknown? Well, Paul answers this in the New Testament. He said in Romans sixteen twenty five. Now to him that is a power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. The preaching of the gospel is the revelation of mysteries that were kept secret since the world began. And so today, when we go to places like this in Exodus 25 in the Old Testament, these things are now opened up to us because of the gospel. The pictures are now seen that they reveal Jesus Christ. The ark is a picture of the person that God sent into the world to reveal the mysteries of his will in the salvation of mankind. Ours is an amazing, intricate, formidable, unfathomable religion of the eternal God. Well, now we move a little further in the study. First is the focal point of worship and next is the figure of worship. If the ark is a representation of the Son of God, if the ark depicts the person of Christ, then of course it does this in a symbol. Israel didn't imagine for a moment that the sacredness of the ark and the secrecy in which it was shrouded and the light that accompanied it, they never thought for even a minute that God was confined in that little compartment. It was a representation of God. It wasn't the fullness of God any more than idols were they were forbidden to make could be God. And yes, there was something that they knew about it that was beyond comprehension. The highest respect was afforded for it because it was unlike anything they knew or they had seen. Now, for sure, Israel had seen many remarkable acts of God. They, they saw the ten plagues that God brought on Egypt. They, they were there at the parting of the Red Sea and the waters of Merah that were made sweet, the water that came from the rock, the, the manna and the quail. They saw that, the thunder and the lightning and the earthquakes on Mount Sinai. That is just a sampling of what they saw. 
And the power and the glory of the ark is another wonder of God's wonders. And this is one is the chief of them all. And what does it show? It shows that Jesus is above and beyond anything seen or heard. Jesus is greater than the sum of all his miracles. The incarnation is incredible. His life was incredible. His death for sin, the suffering of God's wrath, eternal wrath is unimaginable. The resurrection from the grave, the dead come to life by his own power, that's impossible. Who has seen such things? And I must ask, what religion has such proof of its reality? There's a good reason that Paul said the resurrection was testified by the apostles and by 500 people who saw him at one time. And by Paul himself who heard Christ speak to him in a brilliant light years later. What incredible things about Jesus do we learn from the figures of the ark? First, we learn that Jesus is incorruptible in his humanity. Verse 10 says, And thou shalt make an ark of acacia wood. This type of wood was from a desert plant, and it was known for its hardness and durability. God chose this wood because Israel knew its characteristics. It would be emblematic of the toughness, the longevity, the survivability, the irreproachable flesh of Jesus Christ. Though he was put into a grave and there he remained for three days, there wasn't one cell of his body that decayed. Now after centuries, he still has this incorruptible body in which he rose from the grave. In his humanity, he would be severely tested by God. His resolve to be obedient despite the awfulness of the rejection of the people and the rejection of his father who turned his back on him in the suffering, this was evident in the hardness and the durability of the wood. God put him to the test. His life was a proving ground that God used to demonstrate unquestionably that Jesus would not sin. We think of his temptation in the wilderness. He, this was at the beginning of his ministry. He had just been recently inaugurated for his ministry at his baptism. Then immediately he was taken away. The Spirit came and whisked him away and took him into the wilderness. And, and we noticed that wasn't an accident. He, he wasn't out for a, a hike in the desert. No, he was taken there purposefully. The Spirit of God took him in order to prove him. And who was it that God used to prove him? It was the arch enemy. He chose the most powerful evil in the universe. He didn't choose one of the lesser demons. He chose the master manipulator, the adversary, the greatest deceiver of all. He chose the one that appeared to have something to offer, at least it seemed. He chose Satan that the scriptures describe as the God of this world. And so Satan would offer him the kingdoms of the world without the cross. After Jesus was treated to a life of contempt, after endless attempts to find something wrong with him, he was finally seized and taken and tried. They couldn't find anything to accuse him of, and so the chief priests suborned perjury. They got false witnesses to make their case. And then he was taken before Pilate, the Roman governor, who at least was wise enough to see through the mock trial, and in Pilate's judgment, he said, I find no fault in this man. 
Pilate's wife said, leave him alone. He is a just man. There was a thief hanging on a cross beside him. It said he shouldn't have been there because he had done nothing wrong. And that was the whole life of Christ. Test, test, and more tests. God put him through everything. Even in his birth, Mary and Joseph had to flee to Egypt because Herod wanted to kill him. Jesus never failed in anything. He went obediently to the cross. And that hard desert wood said he would not fail. In Isaiah 53, that great chapter that tells us about the suffering of Christ. It says in the second verse, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. This desert wood was one that could thrive in a dry, barren land. And that also was symbolic. It was a figure that Jesus would come to a spiritually dry and thirsty land. And he did. When he came to the Jewish nation, there was barely a small remnant that remembered the one true God. He came to a deceived people whose leaders were were self-righteous hypocrites. And he told the people if they were to be saved that their righteousness, their goodness must exceed the righteousness of their leaders. They thought that was impossible. And they were tried and tested and every one of them failed in righteousness. But not Christ. His perfect life, in that life he earned righteousness that God required. A righteousness that he could give to the people by faith. Another symbolism that we find in this plant are its thorns. There were, there were long thorns that grew on it. Is it any coincidence that in his crucifixion there was a crown of thorns that was plaited and pressed into his head? Did he cry and crumple under that pain? You know that he didn't. The scripture says he never said a word. And then another symbolism is found. When the bark of this desert plant was pierced, there was a medicinal gum that seeped out. It was a healing balm. And what happened when the flesh of Christ was pierced? When he was on the cross, his blood flowed out, and it was the blood of sacrificial redemption. Through this blood, he purged us. He healed us of our sin and our guilt. Isaiah wrote, with his stripes, we are healed. We sing a song that says, come behold the wondrous mystery. And we could plug into that song the mystery of the ark. There were types and figures that were revealed when Christ came into this world in the incarnation. Jesus is incorruptible in his humanity. And might I say that this incorruptible flesh of Jesus Christ is the way that we will see him. He will be in his glorified body. He will be seen throughout all eternity in his body. And this is the way that we see the invisible God. Now now secondly, and I apologize that I don't have time to finish this thought. Jesus is incomparable in his deity. And let me just delve into this a bit to be finished in our study next time. And and please don't forget this. This church meets at other times besides Christmas. Jesus is incomparable in his deity. My first thought is that Jesus, our God, is nothing like the gods 
of pagans. Israel's God was nothing like the God of the nations they displaced. And that's obvious because he's real and their, their, their gods weren't. But beside that, he was different in what they thought God was like. I've already expressed that in the introduction as pagans were idol worshippers. And importantly, in that first chapter of Romans, it recites the sins that accompany idolatry. And it's a litany of the worst things that are imaginable. The Bible says that they were corrupt. They were corrupt and their gods were corrupt. Why? Well, because they made their gods in their image. Men are corrupt. When we went to Israel, we saw how lewd the Canaanites were in their worship. Excavations in Israel show the unspeakable practices in their temples. And much of that worship concerned fertility rituals. If the ground was to be fertile and yield crops, then they believe, well, we've got to show this. We must demonstrate that. And so they demonstrated by fertility rituals. I don't need to explain that. The terrible sins of fornication, homosexuality, pedophilia, every unimaginable sexual perversion took place in their temples. Their gods were not righteous. They were microcosms of their sinful lust. Now, here in the Old Testament, you'll find that in uh, Elijah's life, when he uh, was on Mount Carmel, and there he challenged the prophets of Baal, and they were those prophets were dancing around their altar, cutting themselves and pleading for Baal to answer, and included in that were their sexual acts. Is that God? Could that be God? No, that's what man does in his perverted mind. His God is like him. His God is lustful, just like him. But our God is high and holy. There is no God like our God in uncountable ways. Jesus is the manifestation of the incomparable God. There is no deity like him. He's the only real God. And all the imaginary ones never rise above the level of dirt. We ought to understand that because that's what every religion is. It is dirt. Man was made from dirt in one way or another. He always returns to dirt. And so the gods that he makes are dirty gods, not holy All gods are dirt except our righteous God. So you take account of any religion except Christianity, and in them you find lust and greed and perversion, and then false Christianity is the same. It doesn't escape. So name any that you want, and you will not find holiness. You will not find atonement for the wickedness of the human heart. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem to remedy this. From the creation of man and his fall in Genesis to the very hour in which we live. There is no person as holy as God requires. Only Jesus fulfills the law's demand. Only him because he is God. The Ten Commandments reflect his righteous character. And what is that? Holiness, righteousness, respect for life, respect for the unborn. Respect for men and women who are made in the image of God. Respect for decency and not every perverted imagination that comes from the gutter of filthy minds. And I could go on and on about that. The sexual revolution is the product of inferior gods. It's man's mind twisted and perverted away from the one who is incomparable in deity. 
And let me mention another before we stop. The false gods of the Canaanites required their sacrifices too. And what were their sacrifices? Well, to, to satisfy the anger of their gods, they sacrificed their children. The satisfaction of their gods to them was to take one's own child and lay that child in the arms of the idol and set it on fire. Is that an inferior God? Is that a different God? Yes. God hated the sacrifice of children. He chastised Israel when they were led away into it. How is Jesus better? How is our God different? He gave his own son. He didn't require us to give our children. Our offerings could never be enough to satisfy him. So he gave his own son. And his son was willing to step down from heaven, to step down from his glory, to be born as a baby, to become a man, to be made a servant, and then go to the death of the cross. There is no imagination in any of the world's gods that would do such a thing. They thought their gods would do nothing for them until they had done something for their god. But not our God. He required nothing from us and gave to us everything when we deserved nothing. He saved us when we were hostile to him. He saved us while we were yet sinners. Not after we had offered anything. Nothing we could do to satisfy him. So how is God satisfied? The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 2, he says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation, that means satisfaction. He is the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Well, I still want to add one more thing. America and the world are like pagans still involved in child sacrifices. Our God is self. Our idol is the one in the mirror. And what does our pagan culture say? They say it is right to sacrifice our children to satisfy ourselves. It's the woman's right to choose to kill her baby because it's her body. And what does that say? It says, I am God. I have the power of life and death. I will satisfy my desires by killing my child. And how is that any different than a Canaanite sacrifice When he sacrifices his child to Molech. In either case, it's satisfaction of his God. In one case, it's the God Molech. In the other case, it's God by a different name. Me. Jesus, though, is incomparable in his deity. Those are just a few thoughts on this point in closing. Uh, I invite you to come back next week. You'll hear more. We're not done with Christmas today. We'll go on for 52 weeks talking about how Jesus excels and that he is the one true living God. What an incomparable God we serve. Thank you, Lord, for all these things, and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.